Good morning, church. Today's reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1 to 20. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they were widely known, the same which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told them. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to continue our Advent series through the the passage that was uh, just read, Um, but we need God's help. We're going to pray, and as always, we're going to pray for all of us to to hear, Um, but I'm going to ask, as I pray, pray for me, Um, not just that um, I'm clear and that, yeah, God speaks through the word, but pray that, yeah, even as, as I'm looking at this passage, that God would open my eyes to see the delight in it um, and open our eyes to see the delight in it. But um, 
yeah, I pray that God's spirit is at work in, in all of us, actually, as we, as we look at uh, this, this wonderful uh, passage that's about the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you because you are a faithful God. And Lord, we ask uh, that as we come now and we gather around your word, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, that we would taste you this morning and know that you are good this morning. Lord, I pray that the glory of Christmas would become new to us this morning, fresh to us this morning. Uh, cause us to rejoice the, the same way these, these shepherds and the first people who heard the story of your son coming, the, the joy that they had, give us that joy this morning. Um, yeah, the joy of knowing your great salvation. Help us to see it afresh. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to be changed by it. And all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, those of us who were here last week, we had the joy of having uh, Mike um, from Globe Church. And Mike was preaching to us from the Song of Zechariah in Luke 1. The Song of Zechariah. And one of the things he said that, that stood out as he was preaching is he said that his desire was that this song, the Song of Zechariah, would be the song that kind of is playing in our heads through this Christmas time. You know, with all the talk about Christmas number one and all the people releasing Christmas songs and all the kind of songs that come out around Christmas, that the song of Zechariah would be the one that's playing again and again in our minds. And I thought that was helpful. And in fact, I, I almost want to hop onto that. I want to add to that because... We're in a series in Luke where we're looking at the songs of Luke. These songs that come in and around the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so my desire isn't just that the song of Zechariah would be in our minds. My desire is that all the songs of Luke will be in our minds. In fact, what I don't want to give you is a song. What we want to give you is a playlist. Right? A playlist of songs that are all about the birth of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're looking at another one of these songs, and it's the song of the angels. Now, quick disclaimer, strictly speaking, the, the Bible doesn't call them songs. You, you might call them poems, right? But very clearly they're, they're poetry. They're not just statements. They're, they're, they're poetry. They're not prose, right? They're verse, right? They're songs, right? Even if they're not sung, they are songs. And again, this morning we are looking at the song of the angels. And so, very simply, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things in the context of the song that help us to understand the song. And then we're going to look at the two themes that the song itself provides us. So two things in the context of the song that help us to understand it. And then two things in the song itself that teach us about this song that the angels sing. So the first thing we're going to see in the context of this passage is that the reason this song is able, where we get the song, the reason why the angels can sing this song is because of God's great sovereignty. They can sing this song because of God's great sovereignty, and we see that in the birth of Jesus Christ. So look with me from verse 1. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Uh, two Christmases ago, we were uh, in the book of Ruth, and I think it was Ruth 2, when we were looking at the, the God of the happenings. We saw how God brought about a situation in order to deliver both Ruth and Naomi. And when you read through that chapter, what you saw again and again was, and it happened that this happened, and it so happened that this happened, and it so happened that this happened. And we spoke about how God sovereignly ordained all these circumstances of history in order to provide for Ruth and Naomi. And that's true in the book of Ruth, but it's even more true here when we look at the birth of Jesus Christ. This passage tells us several things that God has sovereignly ordained, maneuvered, controlled, in order to bring about Christmas. Christmas, when we look at Christmas, the story of Christmas, we are looking at the story of God's sovereignty. So firstly, we are told that Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. Now, that's the kind of thing that's easy to, to skip over. Okay, cool. Joseph comes from David. But, but the mere fact that Joseph comes from David is a testament to God's sovereignty. Because for Joseph to be a descendant of David, it means that David's line never runs out. God has sovereignly preserved the line of David all the way through history. Right? Now, that's important because in the Old Testament we read, God promises David that one of his descendants will sit upon his throne and reign forever, that he would have this eternal kingdom. That's the promise that God gives to David. And so throughout history, God has his eye on the line of David, and he keeps that line. Again, that might not seem like a remarkable thing to you. It is a remarkable thing, right? Because when you read through the book of Kings, you see royal line after royal line just coming to an end. Dynasties are wiped out again and again and again. But when it comes to the line of David, God so works that God keeps that line alive. Even when Babylon comes to destroy Judah and just decimate it, we read of how God keeps the Davidic successor, God keeps him alive. So he's away, he's in prison in Babylon, but God spares his life. And not just the kings. Remember, there's a time where the kings kind of come to an end. After the kings, descendant after descendant after descendant, God spares that line. Joseph is able to be the son of David because God has sovereignly ordained it in such a way that the line of David is preserved. Christmas can happen because God is sovereign over history. But of course, there's more to it than that, because the Old Testament doesn't just tell us who the Messiah's ancestor must be. The Old Testament also tells us where the Messiah must be born. The book of Micah tells us that the Savior must be born in Bethlehem. 
And yet when you look at the book of Luke and you start in these first chapters, there's a problem. Because Joseph is from Bethlehem, but he's not in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary, in a world without cars, are over 70 miles away in Nazareth. That's where Joseph lives. So Joseph's there, Mary's there, Mary's pregnant. And it looks as if the Messiah is going to be born in the wrong place. But once again, we see that God is sovereign. God begins to work through history to bring Joseph and Mary to the town they need to be in. And so the most powerful man in all the world, the Roman emperor, at that time decides to call for a census, which means that everyone has to return to their hometowns to be counted. And so thousands of miles away from Israel, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is at work in the heart of the power of Rome to call a census so that he could move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. This song happens because God is sovereign. I hope you get this. Joseph and Mary, they're from Nazareth. They live in Nazareth. And they end up back in Nazareth. That's where Jesus grows up. But for a brief time, they're in Bethlehem. And it so happens that in that time they're in Bethlehem, that's the time when Mary gives birth to Jesus. And none of that is an accident because God is sovereign. God sovereignly ordains Christmas. He sovereignly brings it about, right? In the book of Galatians, Paul says that God sends his son into the world at the fullness of time. God is working and orchestrating and pulling the strings and down to the minute details. God is orchestrating everything to this moment where he would bring his son into the world. So the reasons why the angels will end up singing is because our God is sovereign. He's in control. And Christmas is the perfect example of that. Christmas is the example that in spite of everything that seems to be going on, God is in control. God uses Rome, who are Israel's oppressor, to bring about circumstances that would allow for Israel's saviour to be born. This God is sovereign. Christmas reminds us of that, right? Christmas reminds us that God has the whole world in his hands. That he's working all things together for good. That God is in control and he knows what he's doing. That God is in the details of things. And so in a time where things are bleak and dark for Israel, God uses Rome to bring his son to Bethlehem that the savior of Israel might be born. So the first thing we see here in the context is that the song of the angels is possible only because God is sovereign. That's the first thing we see. But the second thing we see about this song. This song is about the Messiah being born. The second thing we see in the context here is that this Savior is lowly. He's humble. So look with me at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, uh, cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So here's the thing. This is the amazing thing about Christmas. Christmas is about God coming to us, the almighty God coming to us. And when God comes to us, he isn't born in a palace, right? He's not born in a mountaintop. He's not born with this kind of just, like this glorious, luxurious place that you would expect God to be born. No, God, our savior, is lowly. 
And he's lowly from the very beginning. The Bible tells us that there is no room in the inn. Now, the word for in here probably actually is referring to a kind of guest room. In other words, when Mary and Joseph, they're looking around and there's no guest room where they could stay. There's no space there. And so these kind of rooms, these kind of, I guess, inns, you might say, even though they, they may not have had a guest room for people, on the ground floor, they typically had a place for the animals, where the animals were kept. And Mary and Joseph, they come to that place, and God is born in that place. God is born as a child, and he is born in a manger. So, quick confession time. I grew up in the church. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up in the church, and so... As long as I remember, I've always known that Jesus was born in a manger. I knew that Jesus was born in a manger. Um, I've preached many times about the fact that Jesus was born in a manger. And yet, as I was looking at this passage this time, it dawned on me that I wasn't 100% sure what a manger was. Right? You've heard me talk about Jesus being born in a manger. And it just hit me. What exactly is a manger? Look, I know most of you guys know this. Some of you don't, though. Some of you, some of you don't know. Some of you are like me. You weren't sure what a manger was. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. It's where you put food for animals to eat. It's like a plate for the animals to eat off. Right? That's what a manger is. Those of you who love GCSE French... We get the word manger from the same French word manger. My French is terrible, right? To eat. That's, that's what a manger is. It's a plate for animals. And so when God is born into the world, he is placed on a plate for animals. That's where God is put. He's wrapped in cloth and he's put there. The kind of thing that animals eat of. Look, somehow I have a dog. I don't know how it happened, but I have a dog. Look, the last place you're putting a newborn child is where the dog eats from. That's the last place you're putting it. And it's the last place that Mary would have wanted to put her child. Right? The, the fact that Jesus is put and placed in a manger is telling us that when Mary and Joseph looked around, there was no better place to put him. Right? If there was a better place, they would have put him in that better place. They looked around, and the best they could have, the, the most ideal, was this animal trough, this animal plate. Right? Look, mothers don't go through pregnancy for nine months and through labor and just put their child anywhere. Right? Jesus is placed in the feeding trough because there is no other option. And so the, the place where the Son of God is placed when he is born is the place that the animals eat from and slobber over. That's where the Almighty God is placed. So the God who made the heavens and the earth is placed in a manger. The God who sustains the universe is placed in a manger. The God who puts the sun in place and causes it to burn is placed in a manger. Uh, the, the hand that flung stars into space is placed in a manger. 
right? God comes to us and he's put in a feeding trough for animals. So the same God who moves the Roman Empire to call the census in order to move and cause his son to be born in Bethlehem is the same God who ordained that that son would be born in a manger, not in a bed, not in a cot, not one of those, you know, next to me's or whatever you call them, not one of those things, a feeding trough for animals. And that's how the son of God comes into this world. And it's not just how he comes into this world, that's his whole life. There is a sense in which Jesus' life is lived in the manger. The Bible tells us he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The Bible tells us he lives most of his life in obscurity. He lives a life of suffering. Our God, the almighty God, comes to earth. He's born in a feeding trough and he dies between criminals. He's born in a shameful place. He dies in a shameful place. Christmas is about Jesus, and Jesus is lowly. He's lowly. Our Savior is lowly. He comes to us in the depths of our shame and our suffering and our lowliness. That's what Christmas is about. When these angels are singing, they're singing about a Savior who is lowly. They're singing about the manger boy. Because our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, he's lowly. So the first thing we see in the context is that God is sovereign. The second thing we see is that this Savior, Jesus Christ, he's lowly. But let's turn to the song itself. Look with me from verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the song's coming here, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's the song. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to, among those, to those with whom God is pleased. And clearly in that song there's two themes. And it's, it's a really clear contrast. There's glory to God in the highest in heaven. And there's peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. Glory and peace. And we'll take the, the second one first. This song, the song of the angels, when the angels come and they burst out in praise, they burst out in praise, and the content in one sense of their song is about peace. This message is about peace. The message of Christmas, the song of the angels, is a song, and the content of that song is peace. And you know, as I was looking at that this week, I was struck by the fact that Peace, that's such a wonderful summary of all that God came to accomplish in Christmas. God came to bring us peace. Christmas is about peace. The gospel is the gospel of peace. Right? It's that same word we see throughout the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, shalom. It's, it's a word that means more than just there's no hostility. It's a word that speaks to wholeness. Peace. 
And that's the word that marked original creation, peace. If you compare into Eden and you could watch Eden, one of the things you would say is, that's a world of peace. Right? Fundamentally first, peace between God and us. Right? Adam and Eve were this perfect relationship with God. Right? It wasn't just that there wasn't hostility between us. No, there's this relationship of perfect joy and peace. They are in the very presence of God. And they are enjoying God. And they are celebrating with God. Right? And they're with God and they don't even know what sin is. They don't know what shame is. Right? There's peace. And because there was peace between them and God, there was also peace in creation. Right? When you go back to Eden, you see a world that's without war, without decay, without fighting, without pain, without suffering. All you have is perfect peace. This is a world in which they did not know what death, they wouldn't have a word for death, right? They didn't know what death was. A world in which they did not know what fear was. A world of perfect peace. And yet you keep reading the story, and in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, when they rebel against God and when they, they treat God as an enemy, all of that comes crushing down. And ever since then, we have been living in a Genesis 3 world, a world without peace. The very first thing that happens after the fall is that the very first siblings come, and one of them kills the other. That's the first thing that happens. Once you leave Eden, Cain kills his brother Abel. Because that's the kind of world we live in post-Genesis 3. It's a bloody and violent world. It's a world that lacks peace. It's a world in which when you guys go home at night, you lock your doors. Because someone may come in and take your stuff. And even when you lock your doors, someone may break in and take your stuff. Because we live in a world without peace. We live in a world when you put on the news, what you see is a lack of peace. Fighting and discord. We live in a world where if you're a woman, you, you're, you're careful about what times you, you go back home at night because you're worried about what might happen to you because we live in this kind of world, a world that lacks peace. A world where even family, there's division in family. A world in which countries are constantly at war. A world in which countries have the ability, nuclear weapons that can just wipe out entire countries. Wipe them off the face of the earth. We live in a Genesis 3 world, a world without peace. And every second we have lived in this world, we have lived in a world that lacks peace. We've been living in a Genesis 3 world. And the reason why we lack peace is because we have no peace with God. Right? There is no peace with God. We are enemies, the Bible tells us, of God because of our sinful nature. God is opposed to us. We are opposed to him. We are at war with our creator. And everything we see is a symptom of that problem. That's why death is in the world. And that's why there's not just death, but because of our sin, by nature, not only is there no peace in this world, we are heading towards an eternity of no peace. But God, right? But God, but God, the God of peace, has brought about peace through his son, Jesus Christ. Look, Christmas is about peace. 
God has brought about peace, shalom. God has done that. God has brought about wholeness and he's done that through his son, Jesus Christ. The hostility that exists between us and God, Jesus is born to take that upon himself. All the violence that is because of sin, Jesus is born to take that upon himself. All the hostility, all the fighting, all the consequences of our sin, all the brokenness of this world, Jesus Christ comes and he takes that upon himself so that we might have peace. The reason why the Bible calls Jesus the Prince of Peace is because he's the one who brings about peace. The Bible says he himself is our peace. That's what Christmas is about, peace. The angels come and they sing. They sing, they're rejoicing because you know what? There's peace and it's found in Jesus Christ. He reconciles us back to God. And because of that peace, regardless of what's going on in the world, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we have peace. In fact, we have peace that passes all understanding. We have peace that means when everything is going crazy, we say it is well. We say that and we, we're not, it's not positive thinking. We say it is well because it is well, because we have peace with God. And our eternity is secure. God brings us into perfect relationship with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of Christmas, we are heading to the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what that place is? It's a place of peace. And yet if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, I want us to be clear, this peace is not indiscriminate. In other words, it's not simply universal. It's not peace that will just happen by itself for all people. No, when you look at the song of the angels, the, the angels make it clear. Peace is for those with whom God is pleased. Right? And if you want to know what it looks like to be in that category... Those with whom God is pleased are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And those are the people that are promised peace. Look, this world is marked by conflict and suffering and violence and death. And we have no hope of fixing ourselves. And we can spend all of our time distracting ourselves as to the reality. But the reality is this world has no peace. There is no peace in this world. And not only is there no peace in this world, the Bible says left in our sin, we are heading to an eternity without peace. And yet Christmas is about God's glorious offer of peace that's found in Jesus Christ. Let the song of the angels cause you to find peace with God this morning in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. God has offered you this peace. Jesus came and died that you might have this peace. And you can have this peace this morning by trusting in him. Look, if you're not sure what that means, come and speak to me after service. But there is a peace, not just for now, but a peace that will last for all eternity. That's what Christmas is about. That's why Christmas is a time of great joy for all the people. Because in Christmas, God gives us peace. And we can find that peace in Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the Song of the Angels, we see that it's a message of peace is a message that in which God gives us peace but you know that's not ultimately what Christmas is about not ultimately um, it's not ultimately about peace uh, for us though it's true that God gives us peace in Christmas 
No, Christmas is ultimately about what everything is ultimately about, the glory of God. The first line of the angel song, glory to God in the highest. Christmas, you know what Christmas is about? Christmas is about the glory of God. The point of Christmas is that we would glorify God. I was struck by that afresh and I was looking at this song that actually, for all that we might say about Christmas, you, you've misunderstood Christmas, you've totally missed Christmas if you don't understand that the goal of Christmas is that we might glorify God. And that's why in this point of Luke, where it's all about the birth of Jesus Christ, we keep seeing people break out in song because the glory of God demands song. It demands poetry. There's something about the glory of God that demands that. There's something, when we see how glorious God is, words are not enough, speaking is not enough, right? It demands that we sing. It demands that we write poems. Because God's glory is that weighty and it's that good that it's not enough for us to talk. I'm here, I'm talking to you. But that's not the end, the end to which I'm speaking is that we might sing because that's the only appropriate way that we can speak to God's glory. And you see that throughout the history of God's people. Whenever God works great salvation, it was not enough for them to simply speak. They had to sing. When you look in Exodus and you see how God rescued his people from Israel from over 400 years of slavery, 400 years of oppression, and God comes in, and God, they don't fight. No, God does the work, and he rains plagues on their oppressors. And they get to the Red Sea, and they have no idea what to do. And God splits the Red Sea in half. And they walk on dry ground. And their enemies pursue them, and the Red Sea collapses on them. And when God's people see that, when Moses and Miriam see this, it's not enough for them to speak. No, the Bible tells us they sing. They sing. Exodus 15 is a song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They, they sing about how God is their mighty warrior. It's not enough for them to speak. Because God is so glorious, they have to sing. When you look at the life of David, and David spends so much of his life running from one enemy or the other. And so many times, they almost catch him or they almost get him, and God rescues him at the last moment. And when that happens, it's not enough for David to just, you know, say, oh, you know, that's wonderful. It's not enough even for him to just pray. No, David begins to compose songs, right? He, he composed, composes poetry. He sings. And he sings of the God who is his rock and his deliverer, the God who is his shepherd, the God who was with him in the valley of the shadow of death. He sings songs. Because God is so glorious, he speaks to his soul and he tells his soul, to sing, to, to bless the Lord, to not forget his benefits. Because he, he gets a glimpse of God's glory and it leads him to sing. When God rescues his people Israel from exile and they're taken from, to a foreign land and there is no guarantee, humanly speaking, that they would ever see the land of Israel again. You know, most nations that were exiled, that was the end. The nation, that was it. And on that day when God brings them back to the land of Israel, we read in the book of Nehemiah that it was not enough for them to simply speak of that. 
they sing of God's faithfulness. They sing of God's glory. They sing songs like Psalm 126. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Throughout the history of God's people, God's glory demanded that they sing. And they they composed great songs about God's glory in salvation. But you know, all those songs were just practice. They were just rehearsal. They were just tuning of the instruments. It was just that moment where you're getting the croakiness out of your voice. Because God's great salvation is worked in Christmas. This is the salvation to which all those salvations are pointing towards. The shadows of that God would send his son to the world to save us. And so it's no surprise that when God does that, what you see is song after song after song after song. Because God is so glorious. Christmas is about the glory of God. I'm not sure if you realize this. You know Christmas is the solution to every problem that this world faces. Think about a problem that this world has. Christmas is the solution to that. Whether it's death, whether it's sorrow, whether it's illness, ultimately Christmas is going to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Christmas is God's solution to all the problems that face this world. And when we see that we glorify God, right? we sing and we give God the glory because he has done great things. Singing is the only way we can, and even our, our songs are not enough, but it's the only way we can approach giving God the glory that he is due. So these angels, they come down from heaven and they give us a glimpse of what it looks like in heaven. Of what it looks like when they're singing to the glory of God. They come down and they sing glory to God in the highest. And when you see here in Luke the angels singing, they're giving us a glimpse. They're reminding us that there is a song yet ahead of us. Remember, Advent is that season of waiting. We, we look back to Jesus' first coming. We are waiting for Jesus' second coming, when he will come and bring about the new heavens and the new earth, when he will come and make all things new, when he will come and bring an everlasting peace. And on that day, we get to join the heavenly choir. We get to join in their song. And the song here in Luke is a sample of the song that we will be singing. Whereas the hymn says, in a nobler, sweeter song, we will sing of God's power to save. And we will sing it to the glory of God. And so church, let's not get tired of singing about the wonder of Christmas. Let's not get tired of the incarnation. I know some of us have heard so many messages about the birth of Jesus Christ. I know some of us have been through so many Christmases. I know you've heard it time and time again. But church, let's not get tired of singing about Christmas. Because the angels are not tired about singing about Christmas. This moment, the angels are singing of the glory of the incarnation. They're singing the glory that God became man. They're singing the glory of how God came to save us in Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Peter tells us that angels, they long to look to gaze at the glory of the gospel. The angels haven't stopped being amazed and in awe of Christmas. The angels haven't moved to a different track or a different song. The angels are still singing the song they sang in Luke 2. They're still singing it now because Christmas is a reminder of the glory of God. Look, we have our carol services on the 21st. Come to that. 
But you know, every day in heaven is a carol service. Every day. Every day the angels are singing about Christmas. Not a day goes by where they are not singing about the glory of God in Christmas. And if we could only hear them, if we could hear them the way the shepherds heard them, about how God came to be born in a manger, the almighty God, who could get tired of singing about that? How could that ever lose its shine? How could that ever become repetitive? Because the wonder of God becoming man is worth us singing now and is worth us singing for all of eternity. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Christmas. We thank you, Lord, because you sent your son into this world and you worked all of history. You bent history so that your son Jesus Christ would be born, the son of David in Bethlehem to rescue us and to give us peace. And Lord, I pray that this Christmas, our Christmas would be about glorifying you. Lord, help us to see how glorious you are. What a wonderful salvation you have brought about. Lord, look how you have given us peace in your Son. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, help us, help us to sing, to sing of your glory, Lord, to rejoice at how good you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, We're going to have the...